And I discovered a while back that when trying to figure out, well, how does nature work? As an engineer, I'm trained to solve problems, so I spend a lot of time analyzing the problem. But I realized that nature does not analyze problems. Nature takes whatever tools it has, it knows what really good looks like, and keeps doing whatever it can to drive towards a more positive outcome, no matter what situation it is. Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in today's episode, Amelia Tracy and I had a chance to sit down with Denise DeLuca. Denise has been an inspiration and instructor to many over the years, including myself. She's a faculty member at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, as well as co-founder of several organizations, including Biomimicry for Creative Innovation. Today, we had a chance to learn more about her journey with biomimicry, her thoughts on biomimicry as a tool for social innovation, her new book, and how so much of her work has been helping all the rest of us align with nature. Enjoy. Okay, there is a story behind this. Uh, I always like was... Uh you know, toast and cereal kind of a gal <laughs> until uh, we moved to Sweden for a year, for a sabbatical year back in 2000, 2001. And we decided to commit ourselves to being as Swedish as we could, knowing that we were pretty ignorant about what it meant to be Swedish. <laughs> so we would have what we called the Swedish breakfast, which is what you get at hotels. And so we would have um, like sliced red peppers, sliced tomato, cucumbers, and they have very thinly sliced meats and cheeses and different kinds of breads. And so we they call it frucost. And so we would always have frucost. And I realized that my body did a whole lot better with vegetables and stuff in the morning. And so we moved back. It's eventually morphed to almost always have leftover salad for breakfast, <laughs> mm. which is not appealing to other people, but it's really good. <laughs> So no, that's so appealing. Holy cow. Yeah. What a great legacy to keep from, uh, from your time in Sweden to keep that going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've kept a couple of things, which I really love. Another is, um, they, because it's so dark in the winter, they have a lot of ceremonies around light Mm -hmm. and like even children have candles on their desks, if you can believe it. But one of the thing is before Christmas, I have this thing called Santa Lucia day. Um, Santa Lucia song we know that's mostly in Italian um, but it's like the young girl a young girl from every village is chosen to be Santa Lucia and the idea is she goes around and delivers little special pastries and hot chocolate before <laughs> dawn right on the on um, on uh, solstice and so the idea is this is the darkest you know longest night and now we are preparing for longer and longer day and all this song and celebration of the day is getting longer and so we uh, I make these special Swedish rolls, and whoever happens to be nearby, <laughs> I get up early in the morning and deliver rolls, and um, they're called bular and hot chocolate to someone at, at dawn. <laughs> we have to tell people leave the doors unlocked, and we do it for our own children and wake them up singing with candles. And but it's a really it's totally non-commercial. It's really making you aware of the seasons and. I really Can I that. come to Seattle for the solstice this time? Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I have in the past delivered packages of instant hot chocolate in the bar, <laughs> the, bar the bular the night before, <laughs> because it's not always welcome at like my thirty. <laughs> Singing and hot chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. But they have this wonderful connection with um, with nature and the seasons that they that's mm. part of their culture whereas we we don't have so much of that you know here in our curtsel we tend to be of course so commercialized and yeah something else that was really neat in sweden and i don't know if it's other places in scandinavia is that they we had children there we had three kids when we were there and um they required all children to have full rain suits hat coat gloves mm. pants boots completely waterproof because Rain or shine, no matter how cold it is, all winter long, they're out for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. That's the that's at the daycare level, the um, the little guys, and then the older ones they go out every day. And they, it's just when we first went to daycare, I would take my youngest to daycare, not because I was working, but I would hang out with him. But I wanted him to have the immersion experience too. And they were interviewing me, and they were asking about does he sleep in a stroller. And mm-hmm. I was, I used to run a lot with him in the stroller and 
I'm like, well, he would sometimes fall asleep when running, but I didn't, I didn't understand the question, why they kept asking that. And finally, she showed me that there's a whole lineup of what we would call prams, like those old-fashioned strollers, and babies sleep outside. Yep, yep. They take like naps in the middle, in the middle of the city. It, yeah. Like in January, they'll just leave the infants outside on the sidewalk and go in and yeah. have a, like two-hour-long conversation over cappuccino. <laughs> yeah, and it was because they thought, well, of course, it's so much more healthy outside, and they just mm-hmm. so believe that outside is healthy, and in this dark winter, you know, so cold and so you know, it rains, it's really cold, and and yet it's like, of course, you're outside. So in the winter time, so that was shocking, and it was so wonderful, and and then. Uh, it, because it's dark, you just you just go outside. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it doesn't it's dark so you know all the time, and it's, so people just spend a lot of time outside. And you realize, and that really taught me that it is no matter how awful it seems out when you're inside, it's way more nice outside than you'd imagine. So just go outside. <laughs> Can we back up? Um, uh, since I don't know you very well. Can you just give me like how much ever you want about who you are and what you're up to? Yeah. So uh, unlike a lot of the biomimicry community, I come um, I come from an engineering background. Mm-hmm. You know, both my parents were scientists, like bacteriologists and a biochemist. And I always thought I was going to be a scientist. And then, and they were also naturalists. So we did a lot of, instead of like huge hikes, um, in the wilderness, we would spend time like at the Arboretum and spending all day walking one mile, <laughs> look at this piece of lichen and this plant and this bird. And, and so I got to university and I, I found I, uh, I love science, but I didn't think at that micro level and ended up going into civil engineering, which I just loved as it's big and it's gnarly and it's this kind of interface between humans and nature. So it's our side of that interface. How do we, you know, transport ourselves in water and wastewater and and our waste and and a built environment? So I thought that was really I, I really enjoyed that and and then I did uh, I did like uh, hydrologic modeling for a while, looking at surface water, groundwater, and um, and hydropower and agriculture and the uses of water and then I got more into environmental consulting and I found that basically I was cleaning up people's messes as an environmental consultant so someone would there'd be like a leaky underground storage tank and I would have to do the analysis to figure it out and then you know what the mess was and then devise a, a treatment plan whether it was that or a landfill or septic tanks and I was fine with that but I was having kids at the same time and realizing that, you know, I teach my kids to like clean up after themselves or not make it the mess in the first place. Or if it's a mess, make it a good mess that somehow, mm. you know, is you, if you leave a mess, that's because you, you want to go back to it, like an art project or something. Mm-hmm. But, and here I was professionally letting, um, you know, cleaning up corporations or it could be a government, you know, mess. And, and then they could just keep doing it. My job was to help them get away with it, basically. Yeah, you know, clean it up or meet the leather a lot, and and then at the same time, I was like an environmental activist, and like, but like, but I drive cars and I use plastic, and so I was kind of conflicted out with the whole thing, and so I, mm-hmm. that's when sustainability was just kind of becoming a thing, and so I really spent a lot of personal time looking at every kind of technology framework approach um, that was out there to see how could we do things differently. I really want to spend my professional energy trying to make move towards a positive, not trying to, you know, clean up the negative. Mm-hmm. And so along that road, I looked at, you know, cradle to cradle, and, and, and I was going into specific technologies too, whether it was solar or alternative waste management. And um, and then I, along the way, I found biomimicry, and it went on the shelf with everybody else because it was like, yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, it's yeah. neat, but it's just not there yet. Yeah. And it wasn't until much later that there was a, a Tim knows, it's called the Biologist at the Design Table mm-hmm. uh, course. And so they teach biologists about biomimicry and how they can talk to, you know, speak the language of designers. Mm-hmm. And so they brought in some people from the outside to help um 
challenge these students. And since I knew about biomimicry a little bit, they said, well, you come in and be one of those people. So I challenged the students, you know, with my design questions. And But in the meantime, I just was sitting back, back of the room watching all this going, you know, this is amazing stuff. And here we have 15 people learning it, maybe two batches of them a year. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the likelihood is they're not going to do anything with it, frankly, yep. you know. Yep. Um, and I'm like, this is, you know, and I'm like, you've got something here. This is, I finally, like, as an engineer, I, I rely on things like conservation of mass, conservation of energy, these facts of life. Mm, you know, it's, yeah. I call them natural laws. And it, those are just our the constraints and the opportunities that we have to work with. But all the environmental stuff was kind of like, oh, parts per million or, or like, oh, this is, you know, it was moralistic or something or political. I'm like, this is, we, there should be something out there that makes it like a natural law. And, you know, during this workshop, I'm just sitting thinking all these things. And also it dawned on me that like life's principles are as close as we get to those rules of sustainability. Mm. And so I remember going up to Janine Benyus and Dana Baumeister and saying, look, you guys, you're only doing this. And you should be doing this. And you should be doing this. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and like, God. And they like, go write a proposal or something. And so oh, I ended up working for the, the Biomimicry Institute for a while. And one of my goals is to take what was life's principles at that time and like make it more practical so that people could actually go to this list and use it in a design setting and mm. try to make it make more sense it's this because of this because of this and here's the result and um, and so that was one of my goals and then trying to make the whole thing more a, a, a practical for um i was thinking of like engineers people who would, are not in the eco groovy world would not be looking for this stuff but they you know if it helps solve the problem great you know so that was my my goal there and and really ever since then I've been doing some version of that like trying to make this stuff whether it's biomimicry or um, uh, other related things make it practical in the world so you had to have what I call like the profound and the practical or people call it cloud to concrete like really trying to take this stuff that has all this philosophical and spiritual and all this stuff that is wonderful but it's kind of you know theoretical and and then make it super practical so you could do it today and solve today's problems with today's tools and today's context mm. and then use that to shift all of us towards this better world and so that's been my driving passion and I was doing it from the tactical side for a long time and I really shifted um to the social side so applying these ideas to people you know individuals to teams to organizations to leadership um, leadership models and trying to help into people what I call like realign with nature and then the result is you can actually tackle the problems that our um, businesses and our culture are having today much better with these tools and that's kind of the tool of the approach I'm taking look you're you're struggling with all these things today we can get those things done and did you notice <laughs> we're also being more human and we're being more aligned with with our true selves Denise I didn't really give you the juiciness of what I'm really working on because I of the signal issues but um I'm sort of transitioning away from renewable energy because while I believe we need to make our future uh, run on renewable energy, I don't believe that, you know, I believe that we're, our, our society is operating on outdated uh, condi- ideas of our conditions and like kind of this idea of what reality is, is very outdated. And we don't actually need to consume as much energy as we are right now. And so therefore, Mm. we don't actually need to produce as many power plants and kind of have a one-to-one swap out of clean energy from fuel plants, right? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. believe that anymore. Um, And so I'm sort of transitioning into something different. And it's it's sort of amorphous still, but, um, but it has to do with helping women take, get clarity on how their own personal constellation of passions, interests, and experience uh, come t- together in doing work around healing the earth, right? Like, so climate change work, mm-hmm. um, but also offering them then once they've gotten that kind of, you know, sort of feeling strong about how that's going to work for them, 
uh, offering them an opportunity to actually work on projects that very directly, you know, do something to heal the planet. Um, and a piece of that work that um, I've been really kind of playing around with how I think and feel about is like we are, we have selected really one and maybe two of our senses that we've decided are the most important regardless of how evolutionarily they might have evolved, right? And so it's like eyesight has been the, the sense that we've selected to create our, our spaces around, you know, everything's mm-hmm. around eyesight right and 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 you know we've got many more senses that most people agree about and then if you look at some of like the ancient indian or some of the really ancient traditions you've got like 50 or 60 different senses or more you know Mm -hmm. um and so like what happens when we decide um okay we we acknowledge that eyesight has been our dominant sense and we've designed our lives around our eyesight but what happens if we decide to stop prescribing to that and 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 what happens when we say smell is our dominant sense you know mm-hmm. or or something else and we um we start designing our community spaces around other senses um in a more balanced way you know what how mm-hmm. does that change where we live and how we live and you know and how we invite other species to live with us um, and necessarily, I think it makes us slow down a lot, <laughs> which is a mm-hmm. part of, I believe, of going to be a major part around how we evolve as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just really reminding myself that it doesn't have, to, we don't have to continue to collectively make the choice that eyesight is the most important yeah. um, aspect of how we experience our lives. Well, that's that's a really neat approach, Amelia. It kind of, it, it's... Uh, I feel like that's really key to this whole life-centered concept that mm. we're so off-center. And mm. there's a whole lot of reasons for it. And and I've learned to have empathy around it. Um, yeah. Because the other way, just A, doesn't work, and B, you just walk around angry. <laughs> yeah, and which you know? doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't work either. <laughs> and uh, But, yeah, that that's really neat. And the whole idea that we, we need to... I mean, this is what my book is really about, that we have this paradigm that is natural to us, it's, and it's aligned with all of nature. If, if, if you could uh, you know, anthropomorphize nature's worldview, um, it is like, that's what we know to be true. And yet the, the world that we live in, the world that we've created, is so not that. Mm. And... Um, like everything having to have commercial value and like you said this being so visual and of course our brains have adapted to that it's like what are yeah. we 80 percent visual thinkers um which it's cool people are leveraging that too but but like that's a really neat because our our visual is so connected to our our knowledge banks what we think mm. is you know a bunch of facts it takes us away from our intuition and our mm-hmm. true feelings and what I would call our natural paradigm. So that is a really neat approach. I was going to say, are either of you familiar with the, uh, the term embodied cognition? I don't know. No. It sounds familiar. So it's this concept that I ran into in design circles around, um, you know, if you holding a hot cup of coffee in your hand, it's warm and you will, actually think that the person across from you is is warmer or the things they're talking about are more mm-hmm. trustworthy than if you were holding a cold yep. glass in front of you that, that your body and your mm-hmm. senses impact how you're feeling and how you're observing the world and how you're filtering it and so mm-hmm. designers when they're trying to think about this will will try to engage those senses to emote a certain response mm-hmm. but i think you know, all of those for me have evolved, right? They've evolved from just where our our own history, being out in the natural world. And that's why getting out into nature and being, I think, sensory engaged uh, really stimulates the brain and makes it as healthy as it is, uh, in part because mm-hmm. you're you're engaging all of these senses where you're right in our day-to-day life in inside in the spaces we create we're really only entertaining a few of those. We're not always engaging this multi-sensory yeah. experience. And really good point too, Tim, that there are so many uh, 
contexts and, and activities which um, I- increase insecurity and anxiety that our world is full of, you know, no, no surprise that, you know, people have this sequence of behavior. It's like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? It's like, well, well one leads to the other. You know, you drive mm. your car to a mall. Well, the car by itself will take you, you know, to these not good places and then being in the mall, but you, you get, that's normal for you. And so you're seeking these false pleasures and it continues to take you away from the ability to, you know, deprives you of those things that you're talking about. And I think it's a downward spiral. And after a while, people don't know how to engage with nature. Do you know Marianne Williamson? Do you know who she is? Yeah. I I don't, I don't think so. Mm, So she's kind of like a, She's like a really, she's the uh, return to love based on a course of miracles, course in miracles uh, person. She's like a spiritual, spiritual person, mm-hmm. um, but she's really, she's kind of a celebrity. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and she just hurt, she, you know, she's kind of into this new agey self-help stuff, but she's kind of like gold standard in it um, in terms of like a lot of people really respecting her. Um, and her newest book really talks about the fact that like, this isn't a personal struggle, what most people are going through in terms of depression and all these like clinical diagnoses that we're giving individual people. This is a collective consciousness issue, um, that we have to acknowledge and resolve in a community. We can't do it on our own because it's not a singular individual problem. You know, it's not like one person has schizophrenia and we have to treat them. <laughs> it's like we're all yeah. dealing with very similar reactions to a systemic problem. And we have to acknowledge that um, we're not going to, we, you know, we have to do our own inner work. But it's not going to work for us to, eat, to each do it on a silo or, you know, mm-hmm. on a singular level without really mm-hmm. working on community. So um, I'm interested in the social innovation aspect too. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, and, and I haven't really really giving myself the time to check it out but um i'm wondering from what you're exposed to in terms of actually doing the work in the social space what you're the most excited about in terms of either just thinking about or talking about or you know what the world is asking you to bring them in terms of bringing social biomimic social innovation through biomimicry um you know, out into the light, like what, what is it that you're like, you, you're just most excited about doing in that space? Yeah. You know, what's really, really exciting to me is when I'll do a training or a workshop, regardless of the topic, whether it's technical or social, or I've done strategic planning and retreats, it really doesn't matter the context. When you help people access what is natural for them, it is amazing what, mm. what spills out. And and they amaze themselves. They they become magnanimous. They it's just a wonderful thing to see. And what's really exciting to me is that it's so easy. And once people, then my job is to make that systemic. So it's not just a one off when I'm there facilitating. But they can do it anytime they want. And you know, people are so smart. And and Amelia, as you're saying, we've got all these technologies out there, but unfortunately, we're using them. Like solar energy is kind of like the Diet Coke of energy. It's like we, we re- we're replacing you know, a sugar drink with fake sugar without really saying maybe we shouldn't be doing this in the first place. You know? Right, yeah. And, and when, when you get, help people release their own natural creativity, imagination, and then co-creativity where you have people getting together, there's this emergent thinking. In other words, what results is no one's idea. It just it starts to form and gel. The results are almost always amazing and they they happen in like an hour it could happen in 15 minutes or even five minutes and so I know we have all the solutions we need and we can all make it happen really really fast Uh, and and so I'm really excited that not only will the stuff that I'm working on um, and I don't necessarily call it biomimicry um, but when you take nature's the it, when you take these tools and you take what's natural for us and you cut it loose on big challenges we we come up with amazing results and p- 
people feel the sense of what we were talking about earlier, the sense of community and the sense of everything just feels right. And like, oh, now I get why I don't need to posture and wear a special outfit to have a power tie on. You know, it's like all that just falls away. And I just try and tell people, what if you could have that anytime you wanted? And everyone else did too. We just wouldn't have the problems we have today. We wouldn't keep generating them and we can solve the ones we have. And it would just be wonderful. And I'm, I'm as driven by the, probably even more driven by the human element to watch a human feel good, you know, really good about themselves. They, they feel possibilities again. Uh, you know, I, 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 so many people are overwhelmed um, all the time. It, that they can't they can't figure out how to get out of this pit and we f- they feel that way on a personal level and they feel that way on a global level like how can we possibly deal with climate change how, what can i do what can we do it, what can any given company or cu- country do it seems so overwhelming but once you start to say look here's let's, let's work on this using these tools and then they go wow i do see that this is possible then then we can start this positive upward spiral going. And so I feel like if we could just get this out there in the world, um, a whole cascade of wonderful things will happen. So it makes me really hopeful. On that point, when you're looking at the tools that you're using, mm-hmm. what is one of the tools? Could you give an example or a story of where somebody had, had that moment and you saw it happen or, or where you saw it increased somebody's confidence or their their ability to have have sort of a creative endeavors um, in their own space. Yeah. There's a couple of times I, I, I tend to refer to because it was a group I don't nor- groups I don't normally work with. So one of the things I discovered was when we're teaching biomimicry, and I love to use the biomimicry design spiral, these, these steps. So while you teach each step, um, you get the result, you know, the intended result of that step, and people get really excited about that, and they love it. But there's something else going on that I started to notice was universal, and why do people so love biomimicry when almost nobody practices it? You know, I it's a it's a curious thing, and one of the things I realized is that with each step of the spiral, each workshop activity, there's two parallel things going on. One was the bio-inspired design part and the amazing stuff that happens there. The other was this releasing of the human capacity. That's It feels so good for each person and it feels amazing to do it in a group and you see this, you know, this alignment happens and you see all these possibilities. So I, what I try to do is extract those parts of it, so uh, stepping away from teaching biomimicry for like a design result, let's take those other parts and apply them. That's what I'm applying to social innovation. One example I'd love to tell is like I was asked to help out with um, the annual retreat for the Burke Museum here in town. It's a museum of natural history that's part of University of Washington campus. And what the public sees is this little building but it's actually huge. It's in many different buildings. They keep the collections of all these um, different parts of um, science. So this huge fish collection and botany collection and insect collection are spread across campus, as well as the you know archaeological stuff. And there's also this public-facing side that we see, and then there's this academic side. So this is a really huge organization, and they have very these two sides are always at odds with each other. They always feel like they each other's getting cheated and they don't understand and they um so it's been really divisive and they're trying to make a new they are now making a new museum and instead of just making a new building they want to rethink the concept of a museum and so they're trying to do this big fundraising thing and and work with architects and what this should look like and it was just disastrous um because the two sides of the museum couldn't talk to each other so I talked to the director about some thoughts for their retreat and so we did this activity um I one of the tools I use is Socratic inquiries you learn how to explore a topic instead of trying to answer it and so we did this activity and it went fine it was a big room full of people and everyone's like PhDs and I'm not so (laughs) it was a little bit of she thought I was she thought I was a 
professor. So she, I'm like, I'm not, sorry. And she's like, that's okay. You know, they'll still respect you. <laughs> so we did this activity and um, then we had a break and it was, everyone went outside on this deck because it was a nice day outside and the director comes over to me. She goes, look, 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 look. I'm like, what, 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 what? Like, is there an eagle outside or what? Because we were by the water and I she was they're talking to each other and they're laughing <laughs> like no yeah because they never talk to each other they don't laugh together they don't they just sit their arms crossed and they, they have this lifelong grudge and I'm like wow okay I didn't realize that was like a thing so we got with this tool we got they were, we were addressing what does a museum you know what does this new museum mean to the community and they by using this tool they said well what does the community mean to the museum maybe we should look at it in a completely different way and they started they just in you know like 20 minutes came up with what they thought were mind-blowing reconceptualizations of the museum and their role in it and they got all excited about it that's why they were out in the outside talking about it and like all of a sudden they came together because they didn't this activity does not allow them to fall into their old roles and old ruts and and then we did a, another one in the afternoon tackling another challenging question and, and their goal was to get information that the architect could use and um, my hidden goal was to get them to be um, feel good about themselves individually and together as a as a group and and we use a tool um, that a lot of people are familiar with called um, Yes And. It's the applied improv tool. People use it for different things. But what I try and use it for is to say, okay, whatever the starting point is. Like let's say you've got a, a design challenge or some kind of a challenge. Someone throws out an idea. Well, I think it should be this. And then the, the rule is you have to say, yes, what I like about that idea is. And then say what you like. And you say, and we could and then add on to that. And you either add on to the original idea or you take it in a new direction. And the, the two parts of that, it's not about saying, oh, yeah, I like your idea. I, I don't allow them to say that. You have to say what you like about it. So it shows you're listening and you have to listen. Um, and that's key because so many people never feel listened to. And so just, just feeling listened to is a really wonderful feeling. And most uh, organizations are set up and most dynamics are set up so people are never never really listen and never feel listened to and that sets off all, all kinds of bad things and the reverse <laughs> it sets off all kinds of good things and the second part the and when you're adding on to it it requires everyone and allows everyone to throw on a new idea you can't just take sides yes or no I like it I don't like it that, that's kind of not enough and what happens is everyone's feels okay with just throwing out half-baked ideas because they know the next person will take, you know, capture the essence of what's good about it, if not the expression of it, and then take it, you know, add on to it, take it in a new direction. So your idea, which is only half-baked, but there's something behind it, it, will get, you know, keep moving ahead. And so very, very quickly, Everyone participates. You get emergent thinking, um, a lot of creativity. People get, you know, really into it. And so you get you get all really great things happening in a really short period of time. And everyone feels creative and co-creative, which, again, you get the result. But it's how people feel about it, which is as important. One of the things that I have loved about your work in the past is that you formalize a lot of the approach to having those kinds of interactions. So I took a quick, um, it was like a class at one of these conferences with you, one of the work workshops where you did the yes and approach. And it did, it, mm -hmm. tra it transformed the conversations that we were having at our table between, you know, a biologist, an architect, a city planner, and, you know, just somebody interested in the subject matter. And, and we were able to collaborate in a way that if you had asked us to solve a problem together, we wouldn't know how to even approach it. But because you had set up a, a formalized approach of you have to say yes, and then you have to add something to it. Um, mm -hmm. And just the simple way that you described it um, to us gave us something to talk about and gave us the confidence, like you said, to share it and to recognize that our idea is not the end, but it's just 
this piece of a bigger puzzle. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think you also had us set a, what does good look like kind of conversation as well. Mm-hmm. And so those combined really did, um, make a huge difference and i think it's it's a subtle fact but but you do need those structures and a little bit of that formalized yes instruction to help teams move in that direction um i i found with without that it it can quickly fall apart and that and and the importance of those those sort of activities or that mindset and and some level of rules to help help those organizations move forward yeah, especially because although I'd love to get paid to facilitate these things, I, I'm not going to change the world by every time something comes up, it, you need a facilitator, right? People have to learn how to do this themselves. And then what happens is they, they kind of intuit it after a while. You don't have to do the, the step by step. Um, and I was going to, a little follow up to that Burke Museum story was like two years later, I called the director because I wanted to ask her, I was interviewing some women about how they were successful in, in leading and in innovating and leading innovation. And she said, oh, well, it was really funny because two years ago, we learned this tool called Yes And. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now we have what we a Yes And culture. So all of their meetings, all of their interactions in the hallway have that. So... And when you know that the other person you're engaging with has that assumption that I will say, yes, I'm listening to you and I will add on to it, I will not, then nobody has to be in defensive mode. Nobody has to prepare manipulative, you know, politically, whatever statements. They can, and then it also means that you have to be thoughtful in what you say. And so their whole culture has changed based on that little tool. I mean, they were ready for it. And that's when I told them about some of these things I want to do with them. They're like, oh my gosh, we so need this. And it's what the director believed in, but it was really hard for her to, she didn't have a way to, to, to spread it throughout the culture, which had these ingrained, you know, um, assumptions about other people, you know, and they had, so the tool gave them a way to, to, like you said, Tim, to break down those things and to do it. And after a while, they didn't necessarily need the tool because it just was how they did things. Their paradigm shifted. And that's my goal is use these tools that help you in the short term that over time shift your paradigm, just become your cultural norm. I always carry uh, pine cones around with me. They're in my car and my purse and backpack. And, and uh, because anytime you've got a challenge, you kind of go pondering something. You go, well, ask a pine cone. And, and a pine cone being, because everything in nature is interconnected and interdependent, a pine cone is really a portal to the in, all of nature. And so you could, you could ask a personal question. You can ask a professional question. You can ask a tactical. You can ask, you know, political. Like what, you know. What would a, how would a pine cone handle this? And it just gets you, you know, once you have a habit of doing that, you realize, wow, we either I already know the answer inside or we already know the answer. So the, through the pine cone, you tap into your own inner wisdom um, or you come up with all these really interesting creative approaches that you never thought of before, um, which is either individually or collectively. So I just feel like there's something really core to everything revolving around nature and that's why i love this life-centered you know yeah. i mean what's <laughs> it's almost i mean it almost seems like like duh you know well, and right. sometimes i do that with workshops you know like what do you really do you want something that's not life-centered right <laughs> like, exactly well and that's what where, might that be and that's where it's interesting to me too is because human-centered design uh, was a little bit like, mm-hmm. duh, why wouldn't you design things uh-huh. for people? Isn't that who you're like selling it to? And I think the right. evolution is, is, is pretty natural to move to life centered, which is, yeah, it should be about life. It should be about like what, what you've just been talking about. How do we realign with nature? How do we, how do mm-hmm. we engage it and be part of that? What is human nature? Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I think your next book should be called through the pine cone or, or, or a pine <laughs> cone's <laughs> window into the universe or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, all these tools I've put together, I try to have every single one of them named after a pine cone because, <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of biomimicry is, a, is a, um, presented with like really exotic creatures and, you know, um, 
often when people in the biomimicry workshops get together, they'll say, oh, what's your favorite organism? And people try to outdo each other with more like weird or exotic things. Oh, my favorite is a slime mold. You know, no one can say a puppy, you know. <laughs> so it has to be something really. And I, I, I get it because it's to say there's just so many amazing things out there. It's not just about, you know, saving dolphins or something. Um, however, it, I feel like it, it, it puts this little distance between non-nature, like immersed people and, and what's possible through biomimicry. So I've gone the opposite route. I do things like blades of grass and pine cones and sticks, things that are very familiar to everyone. And they've probably thrown them around, kicked them around, threw them in a fire, played games with them. You know, something that's very, they intuit that these things. And, and so you go, yeah, I know a pine cone, even though biologically speaking, many of what we call pine cone isn't a pine cone. It's a cone. Like, I don't care. I don't care what the Latin name is. What I care about is your, you know, your ability to use this as a tool to, to align and to come up with all these neat things. Yeah. So everything is like, ask a pine cone. Um, this is my pine cone. And well, <laughs> ponder and the pine cone. Ponder the pine cone. And it's good because people do have a relationship with those. Uh, it is part of your, your childhood. And maybe you haven't picked up a pine cone in 20 years. Uh, and you're asking mm-hmm. people to sort of, reconnect i i think i think it's genius yeah. one of but one of the things you mentioned too a minute there was simplifying some of these and making it uh more engage more accessible to people who might not be nature lovers who might not be out in the woods all the mm-hmm. time anyway how do you engage them and uh, that that leads me to your online course which i wanted to plug in some ways because it's one of my favorite things online <laughs> with biomimicry which is the introduction to biomimicry or biomimicry basics is what it's called is that right yeah 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 and could you tell yeah, us a little so, bit about that origin of that and uh and and what where that's headed so where, where that came from is you know i give end up giving lectures or being at conferences um a lot and inevitably when people hear about biomimicry the first time, like, oh, my God, I want to learn more. And how, how can I learn more? What can I do? And I always stumble at that point because it's like, well, I teach a master's level course. And if you've got $4,000 and 150 hours sitting around, you could do this. And it's very, you know, it's only offered once every couple of years. And it's a very specific time. Like, shoot, that doesn't work. And Or you can go to this great course in Costa Rica or South Africa and, you know, it's airline miles in a week, and like it's really great. But you know, who who has that kind of time and money? And so, so, and then the other thing. So there's there's that. There's a huge need, and the opportunities are really thin, um, or they you know they require this commitment, or you know the two year certificate program, which is now turned into that we did at the institute, which is now turned into the ASU uh, master's degree. Again, it's like you know you know, great, but it's just not accessible. And then the other part of it, as I was getting at before, it tends to be um, heavy on the inspiration and education, connecting with nature, totally inspired by nature, learning how to learn from nature, and that nature has all the answers, but kind of thin on being able to apply it. So when I left the Institute, was in Europe for a couple of years, I, I, I was on Skype endlessly with people who had taken the two-year certificate course or otherwise engaged with biomimicry. And like, and now they're out on their own and they can't do anything with it. They form these networks and they're, you know, giving talks. and But they, they go, we can't do it. Like, what are we supposed to do? Tell us. <laughs> and I call it falling off the biomimicry cliff. Like they... They get inspired and they commit themselves to it and they try, they, they do all these things and they, they go, no, it's just not working. I don't know what actually, I don't know how to actually do it in my world. And so I just thought, you know, someone should just make a course that everyone could access anytime they wanted really, you know, bare bones, doesn't have to be exotic or whatever. And I'm like, well, I might as just do it myself. And so it was between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I guess it was a year and a half ago by now, um, I had some downtime and I'm like, I'm just going to do this. And I, I've been teaching this course to Boeing a couple of times a year for a few years and it's very nuts and bolts. It's not inspirational and it's not levy, hug a tree at all, although that may be a result, you know, <laughs> that they also didn't get that. And 
so I thought, you know, there's lots of inspirational stuff out there, great TED Talks, there's great books, there's great imagery, all that stuff. I'm doing the opposite, do the absolute minimum. Like, what is biomimicry? Why do we do it a little bit? Um, basically how it's done. And then step by step, very pragmatic for like an engineering type of person. It's not, you don't need engineering to do it. You'd be an engineer at all, but it's very step by step. And the idea is, Here's, you know, here's how those step works. Here's an example that we take through the whole thing. And then at, and to see how it plays out. And I took a really simple one. On, it was just a, how to design a coffee cup, which was interesting, Tim, how you were talking about the embedded cognition, is it? Embodied, um, yep. Yeah. And so that's, again, like, what's the purpose of a, you know, what do you want your coffee cup to do? And one of those things is it's supposed to provide like warmth or maybe give a message to someone else and things you wouldn't normally think of when you design something like that. And so, and then I gave a couple of examples, one, a technical example, um, and then a, a non-technical example, what we might call social innovation. So, um, so the technical one has to do with the project I was, it's not a project I was involved, well, I wasn't involved with actually, but at Swedish Biomimetics, and it wasn't there the way they did it, but I was aware of the results, so I kind of back, if they had used a biomimicry approach, that's how they would have gotten there, so it was an asthma inhaler, and then the other one was a vacation policy, so everyone knows what a vacation policy is, and they've thought about it, so to make it really accessible, so all my examples were things that were pretty, oh, an ordinary person could go, yeah, I get that, and then the other part I wanted to add in there was what what the struggle is. Like I don't call it falling off the biomimicry cliff in the course, but um, where does biomimicry fit in the world? And and it kind of hints at what's that what's in the book that we have this very conventional world with con- very conventional thinking and behavior patterns and organizational structures. And what happens when you take something exotic like this, or radical thinking, and try and put it through that world like if you want to do this it's, it's easy to use biomimicry to come up with amazing ideas you know once you know how it's really 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 hard to then push this idea through a conventional system so what is that conventional system and how do we you know how do we handle that and maybe guess what we could use tools of biomimicry <laughs> to facilitate moving these things ahead so i did having taught online and having learned about learning you know how people learn um I, I created this thing that I thought would be the most accessible, easy. Once you and I chose a platform that once you sign up, you can access it forever. So let's say you just happen to, you know, do it one, you sit through it, you know, in a day or over a period of week or something, and then you go, yeah, that was neat. But then a year later, you go, hey, wait a minute, I've got a project I want to use this biomimicry stuff on. You can go back and take your project step by step through this thing at your own pace. So I thought that was really great about the that platform as opposed to you take a course and you all you have left are your notes so um and then i just did it one of the things we haven't talked about yet is your book i mean we've we've mentioned the name Mm. throughout this whole thing but realigning with nature ecological thinking for radical transformation I think based on the conversation so far, you can kind of already get a hint of what's in there. Um, but uh, this is a, a new thing that's really recent that just got published. And I have a copy right here in my hand. The cover is nice and smooth. And it's got lots of great Isn't visuals. it nice? Uh, it's beautiful. The cover is great. And the color, the artwork. I love the tactile part of it. The tactile is lovely. The um, It smells good. It's got the... Um, the, the visuals by Stephanie who who did all this artwork in here um, and every page is basically an uh, to me they're almost like a reflection daily and you can look at it and read it in that way or you can read through it as a cohesive structure and I think it's a very lovely uh, conception and and I'm so glad I, I have it on my bookshelf but I, I wondered if you wanted to talk about your book and what that was like and and do you have more <laughs> books planned in the future yeah, okay, so I told you when I got back to the States, I gave myself, you know, six months. I didn't read anything. I didn't network. I didn't look for work or anything. I just, it was going to take all this great stuff that was there and try and make a cohesive whole. And I did. And then I thought, I need to write a book. I need to get this down as a cohesive whole. And I kept, um, 
I, I'm super impatient. And so this idea of like writing, like doing all the background research and citations and whatever. And as I said, I'm a faculty at, at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and helping students write their thesis papers. So I know what they should be doing. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and I was getting frustrated. Like I was getting bored and um, I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? I had written all these, written and written, written. And I'm like, I don't, this is not good. And, and it's a lot of negative because Honestly, I'm, I'm talking about what's wrong with the world and then how realigning with nature gets us to the right place again. But the, all that time spent on the negative side was really, frankly, depressing, you know, because um, I keep seeing it reflected everywhere. It's just like, ah, oh, stop. <laughs> and so I, I just kind of, I kept putting it on pause. And and interestingly, it was um, Stephanie, when she was uh, a, a student in the program, and she's very much a visual thinker. She's a designer. She she when she takes notes, she does it in pictures. Um, and so when it came to write her thesis paper, uh, she just could not do it. And I'm like, look, Steph, you're amazing at drawing. Draw it. You know, draw the ideas out. Draw the concepts. Draw the the reasoning behind it. Whatever, just draw it. And she's oh, I can do that. And so she you know do those drawings and if we get on skype she'd show me her pictures and i'm like okay tell me about them i said what about that one and so she would tell me about it while she was telling me i would start typing and i'd interrupt her i'd say okay look steph and i'd show her the text i'm like this is your thesis paper and she's like oh <laughs> like do whatever you do best and then talk about it and she found this like voice recognition software and someone lent to her and so she she her thesis was like thumbnail sketches that she talked about and managed to translate into text. And I gave that advice to lots of students. It's been so great for them. And so when I got bogged down on my own book, I'm like, okay, what do I love doing? What's How do I best express myself? And I know this sounds really silly, but I love creating slide decks in PowerPoint because I spend a lot of time thinking about how you, you have a visual going on and you, you're hearing at the same time. And those can be conflicting. Most people will give a lecture, what's on the slide has words which don't, don't match what they're saying. And so those two parts of your brain are struggling. And I, I love to try and make them enhance one another. And so I started creating a slide deck, really focusing on the visuals and then writing speaker notes. And that became the book. So I wrote the entire book in PowerPoint. And I, so I thought, well, what I so that's why the left hand what would be the screen is the left hand side and the text of the speaker notes became the text on the right hand side and and that's why there's a title in every page you know because that's what you do with the slide to keep the the messaging going throughout the whole book and you know the coherence and uh, of, of the whole thing and and then the other part was I first made all the images in PowerPoint using like geometric shapes are these like geometric people because I want to make it really gender neutral and race neutral and just so people could find themselves without um, feeling distant from it and the publisher's like I get it but those aren't very compelling <laughs> like shoot so I'm like okay I started I hand drew them all so I redid the whole thing and I did hand drawings and he said I love where you're going with this but these aren't good enough. And I'm like, ugh. And I, I agreed, you know. And I'm not a, I love to draw, but I have, have, do not have illustrator skills at all. And um, so I'm like, I need to find an illustrator. But I didn't have any money, you know. And so I said, Steph, would you be willing? Who had, had, we were going to write the book together, but we just kept butting heads about the intent of the book. She wanted it to be for designers. And I'm like, that's a separate book, honey, you know, that w- we can do that one too, <laughs> but that's not this. And so we couldn't, you know, I said, okay, would you be willing to take everything I drew and work your magic on it? Like you get the intent of it, you know, what the, what the, the, the idea of the image was supposed to have your visual brain was processing this information on a different level than your, the brain that works on the words. And they, they, they both trigger slightly different things, but this greater whole. And she so gets that. I mean, that's what she does. And she just worked magic and had these, you know, visual languaging, all the stuff she talks about is like, wow, you are amazing. So a reader wouldn't notice this, but it's subconsciously you would that this things change during the book. And, and even from the 
beginning of the book, you're looking at the people. At the end of the book, you're like in the room with the people because that's the idea that you're you're in it. Um, this feeling of separation with the world and then being in it. And there's all kinds of things like that that she does. And so it was so great that we we got through this really challenging thing with the book and then it came out you know the true co-creativity we had two pig-headed people <laughs> with <laughs> distinct ideas of pushing you know pushing some envelopes um so that that's how it came about in it um I, I decided to instead of having all kinds of references and backup where people could go yeah but this and yeah but that so i want to strip it down to as few words as possible and i have a lot of um, cliches and colloquialisms in there and with that along with these images which are you know cartoony i'm i'm guessing and sort of hoping that people who are thinkers will kind of whip through it and at the beginning go oh this is so you know it's full of cliches and how it's really poor writing and and then i want them to at some point go uh oh i think i missed the point <laughs> and go back and say i use those cliches i use those colloquialism what does that mean that i do that oh my god i am reflect reflecting and reinforcing the conventional paradigm even though i'm my professional and personal life i'm fighting it and just to have empathy for yourself so you can have empathy for others, even empathy for, quote, the bad guys, whoever those, you know, wherever, whoever you put that label on in fighting a good fight. And just say, okay, once we have empathy and understand we're all in this, then what can we do? And then and the the idea is if we realign with nature, we like, what what does that mean? And invite people to say, okay, here's what I'm saying is the conventional paradigm principles and practices. Here's how you see it practiced, and a, what what what's, what what are the underlying assumptions behind that? And then what's your natural paradigm, and how is that played out? And notice that those two things when you do both those things, and why, and like, well, what if you switch to this? And if you think about it, we have these really challenging situations at work. Isn't it actually better if you act according to your natural paradigm? And wouldn't it be better if we all did? Just like the whole yes and thing. It's not. It's partly about the tool, but more than that, it's about listening and respect and being open to co-creative stuff. You know, driving ahead and letting go at the same time. And that's just, that's how nature does it. That's how we do it with our friends and family. And and like that works at work, and it helps us do all these wonderful things. So the book. Take it's. I took the uh, the um, hero's journey sort of format. So life was all wonderful, but then and we discovered these cool things like wow, like fossil fuels. Can you imagine how wonderful that would have been to discover at the time? You know, you're cold all the time and hard labor, and you discovered that. That's amazing. It'd be great. You'd be a fool not to exploit that. But of course, that then sets off a whole cascade of exploitation, and we built industrial complexes and that exploits based on exploitation blah 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 blah. we all know where that led and now we've got this complex system that's based really on like what um tim and amelia are both saying is like wildly outdated you know super outdated and we and yet we have all this technology and and yet we're using stuff that's literally primitive and you know organizational structures leadership models um behavior patterns and and then, um, and so then, and then it says, okay, but what's the alternative? And then I introduced, you know, biomimicry came along and I was like, oh my God, this is great. But for some reason, it's not really going anywhere. You know, it's, it's amazing. Everyone thinks that's great, but like, why isn't it actually working? Why do you keep hearing the same examples over and over again? And in my personal experience, I could see it at Swedish bio, this amazing, amazing work that we did. And we worked with huge international corporations that they said, oh, my God, it's the best thing we've ever seen. And yet they would not take on the project or would not forward it. Like, why? You yourself said it was the most amazing thing ever. And and I thought there's something else going on here. And this is so it's this whole idea of biomimicry is radical. Sustainability is radical. All the stuff we need is radical. We need all that stuff. How, you know, so biomimicry kind of stalled out. It's like, okay, but it's not because biomimicry is wrong. There's something else. And that's when, you know, okay, it's this bigger thing. It's realigning with nature. If we could just 
you know, be aware of our natural pot paradigm, make that our dominant paradigm, not the other one, then we can not only forward biomimicry, but all this other neat stuff that we could do. And so the idea is at the end kind of invites you to go ahead, you know, give it a go, explore the stuff, test it out a little bit safely and to see how it how it feels and notice even in your personal life how how much more wonderful it feels if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then be teleported back where would you go that is a wonderful question to even think about (laughs) you know i um i i started open water swimming in the ocean when i was in north wales it's very cold, very remote and rocky and crazy. And I would—I promised myself I'd do it every single weekend or week the whole year, even on Christmas and snowing. And and I found that literally nature immersion and that that combination of incredible beauty and exhaustion, you know, fear and joy and being so immersed in the elements was it was so great and I just wish everyone could and floating and swimming and choking and oh my gosh it was just so wonderful um I think probably there maybe on a little bit nicer day (laughs) where (laughs) there was just times I felt like wow I could just do this forever knowing I could only do it for like one hour because my body temperature would drop and I would get dangerously exhausted but it was so it felt so connected and so real and so beautiful. And I, um, like when, when everything kind of lines up, you go, wow, the world is an okay place. And I would get super excited. I, my brain would go wild. I would think about all these things and want to come back and write or draw or something. So perhaps there to some beautiful, crazy coast where I could go out swimming out in the sea and, and experience that all over again. I, I What I would love is, is to teleport everyone else with me so they could <laughs> they could have that experience too i like it all right if if you were able to splice in one gene or characteristic from an organism on earth into people uh, what would it be and why interesting question um when i was an undergraduate student i was an engineering but i told you i was going to go into science and so i had a job in a molecular biology lab for four years and and I did gene splicing (laughs) during my (laughs) lunch hours. (laughs) But, uh, you know, humans are amazing. We are just so amazing. I I think instead of splicing in, I I would love to splice out the gene that's responsible for insecurity. I just feel like insecurity in that weird way that uh, makes people behave in inappropriate in ways that makes them ashamed of themselves. I wish I could get rid of that. Mm. I think that is that is a weird thing. It's a it's like if humans evolve normally, I think that is the that's our what's the expression? The Achilles heel. That's what um, if we didn't have this insecurity, we could we could just have so much more joy in life, and we could do all the things we were talking about this whole time about. We would be aligned, and we we would we would be okay with the the world as is, and with ourselves in it. And it's neat you see that sometimes, like in European culture, where their sense of beauty is far more expansive than ours, and their relationship to food is that way. Not not that Europe is way it's better than the U.S. There's it's not that simple, but we that's what we love about Europe. It seems like they have less insecurity, perhaps. You see it too in like um, like villages and you know people who aren't like caught up in the modern world um it's it's a it's a wonderful thing when people can step away from that maybe that's what i would do slice out that gene i like it okay the last one i'm going to ask you today is when do you when do you feel most connected to the world you know there's there's two ways well there's three um one is when I'm feeling wildly creative and productive at the same time, whether mm-hmm. it's writing or drawing or just, and I'm like, okay, this is it. This is how I want to express myself. And it's a way that I can share with others and they can feel the same thing. I, I love that. Um, so that's one. Um, another is when I'm 
exercising successfully. <laughs> I have a lot of injuries. It's like I'm not always successful at exercise, but if I'm just really in, in the moment and, and if it's outdoors and you're just you, you're doing whatever you're doing or I'm doing whatever I'm doing and, and like, like swimming or something and you, you just go, wow, I feel so alive and in the world. Um, so that's another. And then the third is, is really when you're um, – when I'm just immersed in my family and everyone's just together doing our thing. I've got three boys, two of which are kind of grown up, two were working our PhDs and the last one is in the last year of high school. So my boys are slipping out of my fingers. But when we get together, which is still really often, we're a really close-knit family and everyone's just – they're very raucous and um, – you know, passionate and uh, and as mm-hmm. the mom, there's a lot of, there's a lot of boy energy. I love to just kind of sit in it, <laughs> knowing that I help create it, but I could just like you know be there and and, and love it. So that that makes me feel really connected to. Oh, those are all beautiful moments. Um, yeah. Well, thank thanks you. for asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> allowing me to think about them. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Denise, for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you too. I really, really uh, appreciate what you're doing and allowing me the opportunity to, to share this with you. And um, and I know you're you're forwarding all this in the world, so I appreciate the work that you're doing. That wraps up episode three with Denise DeLuca. Thank you so much for tuning in all the way to the end. As always, give us a thumbs up on social media if you liked what you heard. And this is Tim saying over and out.